1: Okay, everybody, welcome to today's episode of Conversations with Jeff. Um, as always, we are pretty much coming out with a new episode every day, Monday through Friday. Uh, last week we had we had a bunch of great shows. We got we got some more uh, lined up for this week as well. So it's just it's going to be a lot of fun. You know, different people, different topics, and just but the important thing is that we are you know staying focused on trying to figure out what the heck's actually going on, what's the truth. Um, and we're actually kind of deciphering things and taking different perspectives and taking a look at it. So that's really what we're doing here. Uh, before we get started, I just want to remind you as well, we do have our membership program uh, called Plugged In. Uh, you'll get exclusive access to our Destroy Social Justice conference, the recording, as well as our very first episode of Connected, which was a roundtable podcast that we did with myself, Sam Jones, Dustin Faulkner, and Schumann. And that was a fascinating conversation, uh, just dealing with uh, the governmental uh, oversteps and uh, controls in response to the coronavirus. So it was a really interesting conversation. Go ahead and check that out, Uh, go to gatekeepersonline.com slash plugged in for more information over there. If you sign up for the annual membership, you get a free copy of our book, Social Injustice. Again, gatekeepersonline.com slash plugged in for that information. Uh, Really excited about today, Uh, we're bringing back uh, Michael Johns, Uh, he was on once before, so uh, we're back for round two. For the uh, there's for just as a reminder as well, he is the co-founder of the Tea Party as well as the he was he was the speechwriter for uh, George H W Bush as well. But really excited to have you back on, and as always with this news cycle, there's there's a ton to talk about.
0: <laughs> yeah, there sure is. Hey, nice to see you again, Jeff.
1: Yeah, thank, thanks so much for coming on. Um, you know, we kind of you know dive right into it to a certain degree, but I feel like uh it, it's a, it's a really interesting conversation right now in dealing with uh the governmental response to uh, to the coronavirus um and i think that as conservatives there's a lot of debate and discussion about is it the federal government's responsibility to do all that they're doing should it be delegated to the states like how do we as conservatives kind of maneuver this response of this kind of unprecedented essentially attack on on our country
0: Yeah, I think if you were looking for a set of scenarios that potentially challenged every conservative ethos about how we operate conceptually versus how we operate in in real life, this would be, um, you know, certainly one of those sets of circumstances to look at because you have our ideological predispositions and then the reality of what needs to be done. And in my own view is that we have always needed a federal government for a broad range of functions, and in communicable disease and in public health. um, And in a crisis of this magnitude, it's inconceivable to really envision how we would navigate this um, in the absence of a very assertive and comprehensive federal government response. And by that I mean, both a response to the public health needs of the country but also a response to the you know fiscal and monetary challenges that have arisen from essentially not completely shutting down but largely shutting down significant portions of our economy now for you know weeks and weeks and weeks so uh, so that's the reality and then of course you know our constitution needs to continue to guide us uh, our founders in my view in the obviously it continues to be a core foundation of our tea party movement or geniuses um they have they established in that constitution a methodology for amending or altering the constitution should circumstances change but the 10th amendment obviously continues to apply here in the sense that the responsibilities not specifically delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states so the answer to your question also is that states have immensely um great uh, responsibilities in responding to this and then i think that's also important because when you look at this crisis and i was just looking at these numbers yesterday um new york state has 66,497 cases of 155,969 nationally that's i did my math on that forty two point six percent of coronavirus cases are in one state. Uh, now setting aside why that's the case, you can't compare what New York State is doing and needs to be doing at this moment compared to um, a broad range of other states that have, you know, cases that haven't, you know surpassed a few hundred yet. I mean, it's night and day so that flexibility needs to be maintained and i'm not sure that there's a universal set of criteria that need to be applied when you have this so disproportionately focused in several states and you know if you added new jersey and california and washington state say into that mix you know you have well, well, uh, over uh, 50%, a, a solid lion's share of the cases globally. I mean, yeah, nationally.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and see, like, and that, become, that becomes the issue of, you know, like, I have a lot of friends, tend to be more liberal, you know, obviously we're out here, out here in California, pretty much everybody's liberal, um, but a lot of things that they're saying is, like, why doesn't Trump just shut down the entire country? Let's, let's do a shutdown, shut everybody down across the place, let's, like, kill this thing, get rid of this. And on one hand, it's like, OK, maybe pragmatically that that would be the right answer. But then as conservatives, is that the right answer to ha- to be able to give the authority to the president to be able to just like everybody stay in? I mean, essentially, that's what has been everybody's concern of, you know, having martial law or something along those lines. So as conservatives, do, do we support something like that in order to beat the virus? But then is there is that a bad precedent to be setting for the future?
0: No, I think the way this administration's responded has been appropriate because it's it's taken uh, coronavirus with a great degree of seriousness from by the way, from the beginning, from day one uh, in imposing the travel, the global travel restrictions, which I don't believe any prominent Democrat, not Joe Mm -hmm. Biden, not Hillary Clinton, not Nancy Pelosi, all of them denounced it at the time, contained the 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 damage that was done, but simultaneously issuing, you know, guidelines for the public health that admittedly, you know, in in in, at least in the federal case is not enforceable by rule of law, you know, we're not gonna arrest somebody for not honoring a uh, social distancing policy. But I think it's, you know, it seems essentially to really be containing the ma- you know at least the magnitude of the crisis to put it in perspective um and again i i think the worst is yet to come so i don't want to you know i don't want it to, to be perceived as belittling the magnitude of this crisis it's clearly the biggest public health crisis of our lifetimes it could be it could turn out to be the greatest in the history of the country even um you know at least of the century but we have 155,969 cases as of yesterday. That's 0.05% of the country that's been infected.
1: Yeah, uh, that's 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 a that's an important distinction to make because because for all for all of the response, you know, you would think that it was a much greater percentage of the people that have been infected.
0: Yeah, I think this is the real sensitive conversation uh, that I'm sure is happening. I know for a fact is happening within this administration. Um, and yet it's difficult to have you know, in the public because you have, like everything else in our public dialogue, uh, these extreme positions. I mean, we have people like, say, your friends in California are like, hey, shut the whole economy down, um, which by the way, you put a lot of footnotes behind that as far as what would be required to actually restart an economy. Economies don't turn off and on with the flip of a light switch. And those who I think maybe on the more libertarian scale, uh, which I'm curious, I'm gonna and I intend to look into this a little bit more. I don't identify as a libertarian uh, for a broad range of reasons, including my strong belief in borders and you know, like many of the issues Trump's raised, but to sort of identify what their solutions would be, because I don't really see how in the absence of some um, parameters that are established here that you contain this virus, you would unnecessarily endanger the lives of many, but to put it in perspective, and continue with those stats. So you have a 0.05 percent of the population that's obtained this infection. Um, From that, as of yesterday, we had 2854 deaths. So um, that's among all reported cases You know, in all probability, the cases are many more than those that have actually been reported. There are people who have experienced symptoms, didn't even identify what they were. Cases cleared up. But if you say just for debates purposes or discussion purposes that that's all the cases there were, the mortality rate's 1.8 percent by my math so far. And then importantly, you know, this is a global crisis and you know it's my strong belief that iran and china two of the center pieces really in the puzzle here as far as where this has been most prevalent um have probably underreported their the number of cases that they've experienced and the number of deaths that they've experienced from it but even if you take them at their word you know you're still looking at it about eight out of ten cases that are outside the united states so those are stats that you need to keep in mind um and yet you know i think we're entering probably the most sensitive period of this in april where cases in all probability by almost every projection are going to increase deaths from it are going to increase and so the question is like how do we get through this not in a way that adheres to some rigid set of ideological criteria but in a way that puts the public health and protection of individuals at the forefront and allows us ultimately to you know, re assimilate and to reignite this economy um, sooner rather than later.
1: Yeah, and, and it seems like you know, as always, there there's extreme points of view on how we should be how we should be responding. You know, because you've got, I believe, it was the lieutenant governor in Texas was saying that you know people that are older are willing to sacrifice themselves for you know to keep the economy going for their for their children and grandchildren and things like that. And then you've got other people like uh, Mayor Garcetti out here in in LA and Gavin Newsom out here in California where they're like, hey, we're going to shut everything down. Like I believe, like I saw a video of them like going around with like helicopters with megaphones to parks and, you know, telling everybody that they have to go in. It's, you know, uh, there's these polar opposite responses. And at a certain point, we need to be realistic, but we still need to be somewhat ideological as well in the sense of like our principles. And I feel like that's where we're kind of going through and trying to figure out, how should we respond? So when we're looking at President Trump's response, you know he's been do, he's been doing a lot, but I feel like at the same time it's been pretty his response has been pretty reasonable. I feel like what, what's your take on what he's actually doing himself?
0: I think it's been entirely reasonable. Uh, if you go through the set of steps that he's taken when he imposed these travel restrictions, he yeah, yeah, had uh, China was put in place right away. Um, I don't want to single out Joe Biden, but if you say he's sort of the most prominent Democrat at this moment, uh, I went back and looked at what his commentary was on that travel restriction, which undoubtedly has saved thousands of lives. This could be a multiplier effect of 10, I think, if, if you hadn't put that in place. He said after the president put in the travel restriction against China, this is no time for Donald Trump's record of hysteria and xenophobia, hysterical xenophobia and fear mongering. Of course, none of those were the sentiments that were behind the actual travel restrictions and sub- which the president subsequently extended to those who had visited, South- who those from South Korea, those who had um, been in Iran within a certain period of time, and then ultimately on to Europe. So it was, <laughs> there was no xenophobic component to it. It was about protecting the American people. And then of course, the economic assistance packages, the, the response of the Fed, which the president doesn't control, that's uh, independent obviously, from the executive branch but i think we've seen a federal reserve that in the in the minds of this administration in my own mind too was too slow to lower rates in all probability earlier on in this administration which but has you know been responsive with the tools that it has at its disposal to improve liquidity within our capital markets and within within the country um that's being oversimplified by including some on our side as sort of a you know, uh, corporate welfare or whatnot. Um, That's not the way to look at what the Fed has done here. These are not grants, they're loans. But it raises important questions because, um, you know, if you look at the deficiencies of the process, companies are not having to demonstrate that they have exhausted all private capital options. They've not had to demonstrate uh, they've not had to put up collateral as you would typically have to do in a private loan um and uh you know there are some good there there are some positive provisions i think when you look at this it's key to me that the administration this administration and i think republicans in congress were acutely aware of the deficiencies within the response to the 2008 ha- uh, housing and banking crisis um particularly the fact that you had Banking executives who had been extremely involved in actually orchestrating, in a lot of ways, the 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 low-income housing bailouts, and you know, then shorting without getting an old deal short, you know, shorting the uh, the uh, um, uh, positions that they had on loans that they knew would likely default, um, you know, never really paying any penalty at all. In fact, being enriched by by a process that made. Or may not have been legal, but it was certainly um, filled with corrupt intentions. I think this time, at least, you're seeing provisions put in place. Is if you participate in this package, for instance, high high level executives within the company forego pay increases, things like that. There are compromises that are made, um, but you're still looking at a situation where the treasury department, which is you know a crucial component of our executive branch of government is positioned now to be taking equity positions in some key areas of our infrastructure. And we've always technically distinguished ourselves from, I'm going to just single out Europe, particularly of saying, you know, no, you know, air uh, say in the, in the, um, uh, air in the area of commercial aircraft. Uh, and and air travel. That's a private sector, not a public sector commodity. You know, in the eyes of Europeans, no, it's a public sector commodity. They're prepared to lose money on it. They're prepared to have government essentially foot the bill for it. That's room for dialogue and honest disagreement on how we should go about that. But we, you know, to deny the fact that we have taken in this crisis a step in that direction would be misleading. We have. Um, on the other hand, it, it is my view you can't allow these hugely critical components of our economic infrastructure to simply collapse and expect that at some future point, with all of the regulatory, capitalization, and other burdens that they're just going to simply emerge. It's not this is not like uh, opening a uh, corner, you know, lemonade stand or something. These are really difficult industries to establish, and when they're gone. You know, it's like they're gone. And yeah. you know, so I think, I think the president's really responded correctly. I thought the, the one thing that was not done, which I guess is still on the table, that could have been done, um, which made the most sense to me as a first step was the payroll tax cut, meaning when we get into tax relief right now, uh, you repeatedly hear the liberal response that um, the the tax cuts were afforded those um you know only the only the well they only benefited the wealthy well you know with the reality of like half the country nearly it's not paying federal income taxes right now so when you cut federal income taxes those who benefit are on that on that upper echelon of earnings but the payroll tax is the one tax that hits every worker on day one Uh, Regardless of what your uh, wages are, including if you're a low wage hourly employee and not to afford them the opportunity to simply take home more of their earnings seems to me to be an oversight. But the Democrats would have no part in that, unfortunately, in this great ongoing partisan divide that we're experiencing in the country.
1: Yeah, and, and that was the interesting thing I feel like about the whole debate over um, over this, you know, stimulus package or bailout or whatever it is that we wanna call it, is is that I feel like there there was there obviously especially from the Democrats, but there was a lot of partisanship in the debate. Uh, You know, things were held up for quite a while uh, because they were trying to, you know, sneak in some of their pet projects and, you know, especially even things dealing with like abortion and and things like that. I thought I thought was pretty despicable. Um, But, you know, some some simple solutions like dealing with with the payroll taxes and like that, I, I don't understand why. That's not option number one, as opposed to dropping two trillion dollars on you know funding everything and all the economy. Why can't we just let people take home more money? Why can't we you know t- you know put, put put a hold on let's say mortgage payments and rents for two months instead of having to send out you know just checks that aren't really covering people's mortgages and rents? You know, I don't know. It's as a conservative, you're looking at you're this right. like you're is you're this absolutely right? Yeah, is, yeah, the, is this I, the I, right I, answer?
0: I think it's one of the most important points to take away from this because. The key to a successful response in a crisis like this, and unfortunately, we probably don't spend enough time, you know, delving into the hypotheticals of what we would do in a scenario like this, we may do it from a public health standpoint, but from an economic response standpoint, those considerations are not ones that Congress is, engaged. trust me, having worked in Congress, they are not engaged in that level of thinking. Uh, Now, the Federal Reserve might be, but it does. I think the key here is that the, the support that we provide a, a that it be targeted, right, that, that it be designed to assist those who've been specifically harmed by this condition, that it not be broad encompassing entities or individuals that, that are unaffected by it. And then be that it be temporary, meaning we don't really know sitting here at the end of March of 2020, whether this crisis is in the final two weeks, two months, year um, of of its existence, but it will at some juncture, end, and at some juncture before then it will begin to alleviate. So the support that we we provide should not be boundless and endless. Um, And then when you're under the this is exactly what I I can recall this very distinctly in the 2008 financial crisis. Um, It was in the midst of the McCain Uh, campaign. They suspended his campaign, came back to Washington supported it. In the eyes of many of us, that was a defining moment. Negatively for his campaign, that would have been the opportunity for him to have drawn some distinctions between him and between he and Obama. But, you know, this issue, again, that's emerged here is that you don't really have when these crises emerge a whole lot of preparation time. So I think within the administration, Understandable, you're saying, Look, these, these are the pressures on the economy, this is what we're going to face, you know, even with a week of inaction. Um, so even procrastination over a period of days to explore options becomes difficult. So while I said earlier, that I believe companies that are participating in the repo, it's called repo, it's a foot fed mechanism loan process should be required to put up collateral requirements in fairness to the government and in fairness to the Fed, uh, the response from their end might be well, that's interesting, but that would be like, weeks of additional consideration time, then we just don't have those weeks available. And by the way, the repo component of this, which is being wrongly depicted as corporate welfare has not even been fully utilized um, by the private sector yet. So In essence, to summarize it, like, is there a role for the public sector in lending facilities to keep open private sector entities that we don't subsequently have to nationalize? I believe the answer is yes. Now, you could find that some on the libertarian side who would say the answer is no. But I do not understand intellectually, and I've been at this for decades now, how you arise from a crisis of this. If you allow our economy to collapse to that magnitude, the key here is to maintain our free market economy, and in doing that, we maintain some degree of pragmatism and flexibility with short-term uh, tools at our disposal.
1: Yeah, and 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 I think and I think that again, like like we were kind of saying, like these are these are important conversations that I think we need to have more of outside of this crisis to where we know what's going to happen next time around, because I think that. I think one of the concerns that a lot of conservatives, maybe even like libertarians, are having right now is, are we setting a bad precedent moving forward with some of the reactions that we're having by both state governors uh, as well as the federal government with like essentially this bailout plan? Like, Are we setting a bad precedent? Let's say we get a Democrat in charge next time this crisis happens. Like, Are they going to take it to that much more of an extreme because we don't have those safeguards? And I'm wondering if maybe what we need to do once we get out of this crisis is maybe consider... I mean, or do we need to amend the Constitution to allow some of these safeguards to be in place in times of, like, a national emergency? Because I feel like, to a certain degree, there's maybe we're just kind of throwing the Constitution out the window in a lot of areas, as opposed to having that discussion, should we update some of those uh, things for a time of crisis? I don't know. It's But it's a conversation I think we should be having.
0: No, you know, I mean, there's... I, I'm not a proponent, by the way, of the Convention of States, which is something that, you know, would. Uh, which has been embraced by conservatives but not by liberals uh, which is interesting to me because of the convention of states which would open basically the opportunity for really broad wide-ranging adjustments to our constitution it seems to me to be the ultimate in in, active, in constitutional activism, especially at a moment when we're still not enforcing existing components of the Constitution. It also would never allow us, to have a monopoly on what those amendments would be when you open a convention of states on constitutional amendments you would afford uh those on the far left to for instance propose a repeal of the second amendment propose significant constraints on the first amendment um you know and and you know address fifth amendment protections you could have a really bad outcome to a convention of states it's a very riskful filled entity uh, but you do point to – as much as the Constitution remains a, a genius document, some of the vagueness as it relates to contemporary issues that we're confronting, particularly when I'm talking about some of these details, which you know it's easy for your eyes to glaze over when you talk about it, but the core to it of how our Fed actually functions, how money enters into our economy in a fiat currency system are not issues – they're not issues that are addressed with extraordinary specificity within the constitutional framework because they predate fiat currency um, and they predate any conception of a crisis of this magnitude, a country of this size, you know, um, but it continues to mean in me, in my view, to be a guiding document and a clear cut on the on the core freedoms that we need to be protecting.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, for sure. Now, I you now I think kind of like you know shifting a little bit in in this conversation, but taking a look at kind of the world's response to all of this kind of stuff, and you know like we're we're seeing uh, the WHO uh, response. We're in the fascinating thing with that is how closely connected and tied they are to China, which is the epicenter right. of how this all started. If you can kind of talk a little bit about that and like what's your take on the more international response to this issue.
0: Well, I think when we get through this whole thing, now is not the time necessarily for us to be diving this on the policy front. But I think we have identified what many of us suspected, and I certainly have suspected for a long time, is that we have a crisis of process and a crisis of leadership at the World Health Organization. We have undue influence by China in the way it's going about its work. And... um, you know, in my judgment, even though there's starting to get to be a little bit of attention on this, the inst- human instinct when you face a crisis this magnitude, with all the uh, all the, the you know the loss of human life, people's health endangered, the the social isolation, the emotional cost of that, the the vast economic cost, is to say, well, somebody's to bl- who's to blame? What institution or individual is to blame? You know, and that's sometimes that's a dangerous press. That's a dangerous question to ask because we're in an imperfect, we're imperfect species in an imperfect world. And things do sometimes simply happen as the saying, to paraphrase the saying. <laughs> but, um, look, the world health organization deserves a lot of blame for the situation we're in. They deserve some degree of blame. This is what they said on January 14th, uh, uh January 14th, 2020. So we're, we're now talking a well over a month into the Wuhan component of this crisis, right? Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human transmission of the novel coronavirus identified in Wuhan, China. So two problems with that statement. Number one, uh, whatever the exact origin of the the coronavirus, China was acutely and well aware that it was being transmitted uh, human to human um, Uh, at that point and number two, the world health organization is guilty at that point of either one of two things, either also being aware of that and misleading the world, which is actually the greatest disservice they could serve as the world's largest health organization or number two, um, you know, just simply taking China at its word, which is, um, you know an also equally unacceptable approach i mean the world health organization should actually probably take no government's word uh but of all the government's words you were going to take to take china at their word with their history of misrepresentation is astonishing to me and then when you look at the actual damage that was done by that um we could have been at that moment at work on testing we could have been at work on vaccines, we could have been at work on medical device respirators, all of the infrastructure needs that we're talking about. We could have begun having the dialogue you and I were just having about what a potential uh, fiscal and monetary response should be to the crisis. But none of um, that was possible because they were transmitting to the world that this was not a problem. And then you go further and say, within China itself, um, you know they had the opportunity and a decision to make early on were they going to cooperate with with us in the world community or were they going to be closed off as they too commonly are and and secretive about the whole thing and they really did not allow in cdc right away uh and they still have not shared vital data or statistics with u.s public health officials and and my my question which i think they they have to be required to answer at this point is why not why not yeah i mean I mean, cause that's ultimately a disservice to global health. It's a disservice to the bilateral relationships between Washington and Beijing, which are already strained and immensely sensitive. And um, I just, so I think there's a lot of room for disappointment within this. You're not going to hear that as forcefully out of the administration in part, because there's such a broad range of issues that the, you know, You have to kind of prioritize your issues with China. You can't put everything on on the table at once, Uh, which is one of the reasons I think the president sort of downplayed the China propaganda as it relates to conspiracy theories and whatnot recently. uh, That's not ignorance on his part as it relates to what China's doing. He acknowledged that China's engaged in global disinformation. However, we have you know, a st- structure of priorities that have to be managed in this relationship. And I think that suggests that maybe that one is a, important, but not the top priority right now.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and I think that, especially dealing with all of this coming out of China as well, it, it's, it leads to another conversation on our reliance on China uh, for as as many products as, as we import. And, you know, because, because I think that, that that has been a big contributing factor, even to this disease previous disease outbreaks and things like that is that there's a lot of trade there's a lot of travel back and forth between china and here and there's a lot of reliance on there because we can we can get stuff for crazy cheap from them because they don't have minimum wage laws like we do here and i think that that kind of leads to a question of should we be relying on these foreign countries for so much and is that is that in all reality a national security threat to us moving forward
0: in my judgment, of course, it's a national security threat to us. And I think that that question, and the, and I think most Americans recognize it's a, it's a national security threat. It's one of the reasons the president was successful in 2016 is that there was a broad range of recognition that a lot of these issues he first began talking about, including our over-reliance on China and China's unfair practices, were not ones that had been addressed prominently by either party for decades prior to um, his candidacy. It's also one of the reasons I endorsed him on day one. But, you know, 95% of uh, pharmaceutical management or pharmaceutical production uh, within China, that's an astonishing statistic. Um, I've worked in the pharmaceutical industry at Eli Lilly and knew, you know, was there in the 90s when, they, when a lot of this outsourcing uh, began. I thought it was a dangerous trend then, even with c- countries that were not enemies of us. Um, and I think you have to define, you know industries that we need to be prepared to um, not be reliant upon with, with, with other countries in the world. Strategic assets, you know would not probably include every industry or every product line. It would exclude a lot of them, in fact. But clearly, to be reliant on China and to have China baitingly say in the midst of this crisis, "Hey, we'll just cut off your pharmaceuticals," which, you know, I think they were trying to remind the world, which they do way too often, in my judgment, that they have leverage and power. Um, I don't think it was a serious threat. Not uh, under any, I don't believe they're going to do that. It's not in their interest to do that either. But the fact that it is technically correct that they have the capability to do that is an immensely frightening reality.
1: Yeah, and and I think that that then leads us to be to like try to consider like you know, are we as Americans willing to pay more to be able to be able to you know essentially produce stuff back here in the United States you know and I, and I think to a certain degree that's that's what's hard about this minimum wage debate that we were having over the last couple of years of raising minimum wage up to fifteen dollars an hour and things like that is that just in my opinion makes us more reliant on these foreign countries that can that can pay literally pennies on the dollar to these employees and sweatshops and things like that because they can make it dirt cheap so of course we can import it and then sell the stuff at the dollar store, you know. You can't afford to do that if you're paying somebody $15 an hour to do that kind of a thing. So that that begins this kind of debate over what do we actually want as Americans. And I don't know if America's fully decided what we actually want. Do we want the cheap stuff or do we want to be self-reliant?
0: Well I think whenever you're dealing with any healthcare topic or discussion, the answer is we want an all of it. you know that's part <laughs> of the challenge. That's what we're at a standstill on American healthcare policy. Because one of the strongest held sentiments of the American people right now on health care is they want lower drug prices. Um, if you look in detail at any polling of individuals on what their policy priorities are right now, uh, it's amazing how high that is on their list of priorities. And that's despite President Bush 43 putting into place Medicare Part D which provides a substantial degree of coverage of pharmaceuticals. This is a real serious concern. And then simultaneously, you can see how that collides with lowering the cost of production for pharmaceuticals, which can appear very tempting when you say, well, how are we gonna lower these costs? That's been the private sector solution, but on a private sector basis, they're not, going through the levels of considerations of public interest as it relates to strategic threats to the country, circumstances that could arise from a national security um, perspective or a breakdown in bilateral relations. Those are not things that are typically coming up in corporate boardrooms uh, right now. The essence of the question, though, is that I mean, we have a president, and uh, of some props to Marco Rubio, too, um, who, uh, as you know, our Tea Party movement was forcefully behind um, as a candidate for Senate um, in identifying the magnitude of our over dependence on China. And we need to get away from it. And the, on your final point on the issue of the costs, uh, you know, over time in economics, you've got this. The phrase economies of scale, which you probably have heard about, is that as you begin to magnitude, manufacture more and more of any individual price of any individual product, the price comes down on an incremental basis. You know, now China is reaping all of those economies of scale benefits because of the magnitude of production they're doing. If we were doing that here, um, we would potentially be reaping the benefit of it. And there's other issues, too, like the drug importation question and things that we need to be getting around to um, as it relates to coronavirus. So I think, you know, uh, the other que- the other question that came up was a soft label use of therapies for the purposes of um, treating conditions and particularly life threatening conditions. And, you know, I thought the FDA's response here too on this crisis was really pretty good in the sense that they um, moved to approve emergency authorization for the one novel off-label use of a malaria medication that is proved uh, to be effective globally in in these cases and that's another it's a complicated that's another complicated area but we need to get better at being able to establish the safety and efficacy of medications more quickly than we do right now. That's where a lot of the cost in pharmaceutical production lies. And we need to be a country that is the global home to innovation in healthcare. We historically have been that, but we've lost quite a bit of it to Europe and to China.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of that is because of like like you were saying like a lot of the governmental you know regulations and you know they just make it so difficult and expensive to to get things like I know that I have a, I have a lot of friends in the food industry and I know it's it's a different industry altogether but it, it's so expensive just to even you know get organic labeling on products like that a lot of companies it's like because they can't afford to drop thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars uh, you know they, I'm sorry.
0: To go through the actual yeah process to, to go through, to go through
1: the process mm-hmm. and get it and you got all these small little companies they can't afford to do that so magnify that times however many hundreds on a big pharmaceutical on a big pharmaceutical scale it's 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 diff it's difficult to do and that's why I think a lot of this is really expensive um, but then but then I think kind of in in dealing with all of this you know Trump when he was campaigning he was he was pushing an America first agenda. And you know, he and he really he really made a big focus on those words, America first. And it's almost like he prophetically predicted something like this was going to happen. But but I think that that's a conversation that the Democrats were saying he was racist for saying that, or bigoted, or xenophobic, or whatever it is. But at the same time, I think it, it's a it's a legitimate conversation that we need to have. Do are we going to put America first, or are we going to be putting China or Middle East or these other countries and other places? That again, coming out of this. We might need to, you know, get back to that.
0: Yeah, I think in the minds of, you know, unfortunately, many in Washington, they would respond that that's an oversimplification, that we're in a globalized economy. But I think one of the things that's developed since the Trump presidency has been the unearthing of a lot of truth and reality as it relates to wrongful predictions and projections by some of this, I think it's the, the expert class of this country has really been revealed to uh, not be as expert as we thought they were. And sadly, you know, we took a lot of their advice and guidance on some real crucial issues. And I'll give you one example also from the 90s. I can recall I uh, after the Bush administration had worked with a large uh, global U.S. government organization that was involved in supporting uh, emerging democracies in the post. This was right after the end of the Cold War War. And I would routinely raise some of these issues about China, and the rebuttal from people on our side, uh, ideologically, and from people on the left, as it related to it was that as China's economy grew, as it as it expanded, which it clearly was beginning to in a in a in a, in a very expeditious way, with, that the society would open up and that you would see a greater respect for human rights as the middle class sort of established itself within China, you would have too much pressure on the government uh, to be able to pull out the Tiananmen Square like and other human rights abusing behaviors that they were then engaged in. And of course, when you look at what's happened now, uh, 20 years later, their economy has grown exponentially, and their abuse of human rights has also grown exponentially, meaning the exact opposite of what they projected and predicted. And these were some leading sinologists in the world uh, is what's transpired. And unfortunately, I just come to the conclusion, again, aligned with what the president has said, that um, you know this swamp of people and institutions is corrupted by money and power and they're fully capable and have proven themselves entirely too willing to misrepresent things um for the interests of those two objectives and you know we which is why i've believed in the founding of our tea party movement of decentralizing political authority back into the hands of the people in ways that would allow us to make our arguments and engage politically um, outside of that arena, not exclusive to that arena, all right, but not dependent on that arena. And I believe that that continues to be one of the biggest issues and challenges that we have is that the American people see these issues, they understand these issues. They may not be expert on them, but they have the right instincts and inclinations, and they need to be incorporated in a in a bigger, not a smaller way into our political process. Yeah,
1: yeah, it, it, you know, it, I think and I think the interesting thing too about this is seeing how the mainstream media has has responded to how you know to Trump's decisions, as well as a lot of um, a lot of the politicians too. You know, because I feel like we are in the midst of a crisis, but there's still they're still kind of angling towards the 2020 election because we do have that election coming up, and 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 one of the things that that I've come to realize in talking to a lot to a lot of people is that a lot of the criticisms that a lot of my friends out here in California have of Trump isn't necessarily his decisions, but his demeanor and how he responds to the media, and you know like even at the press conferences, like they'll ask him hostile questions he'll respond, kind of put them in their place, but he's the one that gets bashed, not them for asking him these dishonest questions. Uh, like how how do how do we even like maneuver this whole situation of a dishonest media, you know, putting dishonest questions before the president, but then, you know, looking ahead to 2020, how is this all going to play out to a certain degree, do you think?
0: I think among a lot of people who fundamentally disagree with the president ideologically use that as the cover for their own disagreements with the president. It's an easier point to make. I've frankly not yet identified a singular person who says, you know, I agree with Trump on everything ideologically, but because of this or that personal trait, I'm not going to vote for him. Um, I I would suspect, and as I've said previously, that the 63 million Americans who supported Trump in 2016 are going to vote with even greater levels of enthusiasm and less uncertainty in 2020 for him than they did in 16. And I guarantee you, if there was a, a broad number of people who were not in that camp, the media would be putting them in front of you every day. Here's this man or woman who supported trump in 16 but because of this that or the other thing he's not going to support him in 20. the reality is that is just not a broad part of this political electorate we have this i don't even like to call it a trump base i think it minimizes it it's 63 million people it's at the electorate um, that is with the president and then you know there's clearly a a, a solid foundation of people that are ideologically just never going to vote for a republican or a conservative um and a certain number of people who are undecided i think that's a shrinking number of people in the electorate more important are the number of people who are uninspired and um i you know i looked recently at this what's called enthusiasm poll for candidates um because it's intriguing when you go back through 2004 no no presidential candidate has ever won when they've been trailing in their enthusiasm uh numbers you know as um Hillary Clinton did, as uh, Romney did, as McCain did, as John Kerry did. They all trailed. And um, Joe Biden right now is down like 29 points to Trump on this enthusiasm gap. So while the poll- you might see polling numbers that show, hey, aha, here's one that shows Biden ahead, you know, in, in, in political support. You've got this large number of people who are not motivated by his candidacy. Are not inspired by his candidacy, are not likely going to be out in November 2020 voting for him. Um, that's not meaning they support the president, but they're not officially inspired by Biden to support him either. Yeah, I think Romney, Romney, you know, had a very winnable election in 12, with the same set of circumstances, and he very unwisely chose not to engage um, our Tea Party movement, which then really had direct mobilization capability of tens of millions of americans and you know a few million votes there of people who for a fact did weren't inclined to vote for romney who had voted for bush or had voted for mccain didn't go out and vote that day and um that gave obama four more years
1: yeah you know
0: i I have i made these notes because i Been thinking of developing something on this and this sort of looked at, you know, I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, the media does sort of appear to be cheering against the president um, from the very beginning on this. And, you know, at the very beginning, you know, we talked about the response that they had to the travel restrictions, which was one of the most sensible and, and still one of the most sensible steps the federal government can take to contain this we don't have a vaccine the federal government can only do so much There's time involved, et cetera. But, you know, I went through these steps I said, number one, um, the statement that was made that the president told governors in the conference call that they need to go out and get their own ventilators. Well, then, you know, the reality of that conversation comes out and it says, no, the federal government is doing everything we can do. If you guys can get ventilators, go get them. So that was fundamentally misrepresented to the public. You had, number two, this uh, position, which was circulated globally, that somehow the president was trying to um, arrange a monopoly on the vaccine. That's not even really an option when you consider the methodologies through which – a vaccine is approved in the US through our testing and FDA processes and, and those of foreign countries. You had the nationwide curfew law, which literally the nat- no, nothing short of the National Security Council had to come out and rebut and say that this is not under any degree of current consideration to put in place national curfew. But you had all of this hysteria there for a few days running around the fact that we were on the imminent brink of some sort of national curfew. If you remember the Rose Garden conference, uh, press conference where he brought in all of the uh, private sector executives, which I thought was a very persuasive and um, uh, effective way of, of showing the fact that this is not a government responsibility. This is not a private sector responsibility. It's kind of, you know, everyone, we're all in this, you know, public and private sector to get this thing solved. The, when he met, mentioned that Google had been working on this website to um, put together, you know, a, a definitive source of coronavirus resources, you know, and they reported that Google wasn't doing that, that it was only something in the Bay Area, and then subsequently Google had to come out on a corporate level and say, no, in fact, we have been working with the administration exactly as the president said. They misrepresented that. The Big, two biggest lies have been the these final two, the, the the one that the president eliminated the what's called pandemic department. Um, there is no pandemic department in the federal government. There's a broad range of agencies and departments that have functional responsibility in responding to this. I mean, we have like FEMA has got you know certain responsibilities, the CDC has certain responsibilities, health and human services, a certain responsibility. You know, um, the CMS, which governs our Medicare and Medicaid services, has certain responsibilities, other agencies and departments, transportation. So if, then we have we have uh, this portion of the National Security Council, and it turns out, well, no, the singular source for this Trump shutdown the pandemic department was a former Obama appointee who had been replaced within the administration who said that, um, Trump had done that. The guy who took over subsequently to write this opinion piece for the uh, Washington Post spelling out, no, in fact, nothing was shut down. You know, there was some restructuring within the NSC and some of those responsibilities were shifted within the NSC and, and there were additional personnel uh, brought in to manage them. But that was a complete lie. And yet, the, you know, for weeks, you kept hearing this, not like days, weeks, kept hearing, you know, this, well, the president has done this. The, pres- the, the other lie, the president has cut funding for CDC. Funding for CDC has gone up every year in the three years of this administration. Just completely factually uh, inaccurate reporting. And then the final point that the president had ever labeled this a hoax, the um rally he spoke at in south carolina when this was first emerging he had said that the democrats depiction of the administration as not managing it properly kind of followed on top of russia and ukraine and was their latest hoax it was designed it was the hoax was how democrats were representing what the competent management that they were at the time bringing Uh, To addressing this crisis in the earliest days of it when it was essentially restricted to the state of Washington At no point did he ever say this was not a real Threat to the country or that the federal government wasn't taking it seriously
1: Yeah, and in in what's fascinating is that you know, I I have a lot of friends They'll they'll text me or message me or send me an email like hey, what's going on with this? Why 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 did he say this and almost every single time I get one of those messages or somebody reaches out to me like that, you actually go and you look, you do your research, you look at the context of what was said, and it's almost never what the media is reporting. And so then that, that leads into like, at what point do we just like, Stop paying attention to them. I mean, you know, it, it, they're clearly not putting out the truth, and I think that that's repeatedly stated over and over and over again. I mean, even look at this latest thing with uh, Rachel Maddow and her response to Trump with uh, with the ship coming in to New York, and she's and clearly she was wrong, but even now she won't admit the fact that she was wrong in in her prediction. And again, it's just a bunch of misinformation out there, and it's it's like how do we move forward with this when you've got a dishonest media?
0: Yeah, and I, and I do believe it's on both sides. I mean, one of my biggest frustrations has been, um, you know, even mis, uh, misrepresentations of this repo component of the Federal Reserve's response and depicting it wrongly. Um, and, of course, when these individuals come out and improperly label it corporate welfare, uh, which they know is going to, to stir people into anger and frustration and um kick off a whole set of of political issues um, that you of course, you never see with them their alternative plan for how they would have handled this. Uh, You you know, Rachel Matt, who's Rachel Maddow? I mean, um, here she is like offering her commentary on the logistics of naval uh, assets and personnel around the world. You know, And like you correctly said, I called her out on that, too, because she said there's no way that um, that the president would have these naval health oriented ships in the United States for weeks. And then within 10 days, of course, we have one of the largest of them in New York City Harbor, where it's most needed right now to address the issues in New York State and address non coronavirus issues in um in new york state to take the burden off of the hospitals so and you know it's like they just keep going and it's just there's really no other profession like this when you think about it like, you know uh, of, of where you can get so many things so wrong so routinely and then you just sort of shrug your shoulders and move on to um to the next next one i mean and there, and by the way the errors if you notice. And of course, you do, you don't, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Always seem to break one way. Yeah. They never seem to, they never seem to make an error in the benefit of the president or, you know, or an error that, that unfair is unfair toward the left side of, Mm -hmm. of um, American politics. The errors always break against this president and against uh, those affiliated with American conservatism. And it's become groupthink. And it's sad because it's, really diminish. I mean, there's there's no institution that I can think of um, outside of Congress and media and maybe attorneys that are the low, more lowly thought of by the American people. So these same media figures that continue to go, aha, look, the president's popularity support is only at 45%. Go take a look at what theirs is. It's, you know, 12, 15%, less than that sometimes. I mean, they, they um, They will never, again, in my view, based on the um, magnitude of bias that they've reflected over the past few decades, be able to establish that level of credibility with the American people. And it's one of the reasons that media has changed so dramatically over the last uh, decade that uh, it's created demand for more objective sources of news and alternative sources of news. Yeah. Facts, but I'll turn the sources in
1: right well see like that that's the thing is like look, looking historically I mean you saw this with uh, you saw this with Bush saw this with Romney saw this with McCain now we see it with Trump it's 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 like like you're saying it always breaks one way and I think that that that's an important distinction that we need to make looking at the media is that it would be one thing if they were like half the time they get it wrong in support of Trump half the time they get it wrong against him like that would right. be that would be fair. But it's it's I I I can't think of a single instance where they reported something inaccurately, and it went in Trump's favor. I don't I, I, I would challenge anybody to come up with something like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, and um, I've had I've someone say t- misfortune. But I'd say the good fortune. I've been interacting with a lot of these people, and the one thing that I've always been able to tell um, is that they start out before they approach, whether it's broadcast journalism or print journalism, these projects, they already have the thesis, sort of in their mind, you know, and they're looking to fill in the blanks. So it's not like journalism as it may have been in like the 50s or something like that, where they would sort of say, you know, we're not really sure what the let's go find out what the facts are, and who, what, where, when that's like never any longer really the, the, the essence of, of methodology that's employed in mainstream media journalism, it's a provocative thesis, the thesis of which itself may be accurate, may be inaccurate, but is always designed to advance a political narrative. And then, you know, going out and securing facts, quotes, anonymous sourcing, which is absurd, um, to advance that um, that that line. You know, and the anonymous sourcing is a huge problem with this administration.
1: Yeah, no, that, that, and I, that, and I
0: think back to one of the one of the one of the most intelligent, uh, smartest, creative articles that I think I ever read by my former colleague Dinesh D'Souza when we were at Policy Review, who wrote a piece for the American Spectator about anonymous sourcing and media bias, and he said he closed the article by saying. You know, so so where do uh, these mainstream media outlets obtain um, these anonymous quotes? Quote, we make the damn things up, said a uh, anonymous source from me. <laughs> 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 and that's sort of feeding it back to them a little bit. But, you know, you could certainly see if you apply these kind of standards to any other Profession, you know, there'd be outrage and and uh, and p- an unbelievable pushback. But I think implicit in what, in your question at the very beginning is just how exhausting this whole process can be. That if you're in the fact-checking business or the or the um, the business of trying to project things with a, with a great degree of intellectual accuracy, uh, you know, you'd be quite a busy person in. In this world right now, because you have so many people engaged in it, the in fact the majority engaged in it that I don't believe have that as a first, second, or third objective on the list of what they're doing. And I do I say in uh, my own defense that there's nothing ever more frustrating to me than with the magnitude of communication that I do on public policy issues is is when if I stumble upon and misrepresent or um, even slightly a factual reality, you know, because in my view, credibility comes from accuracy. And obviously I have an ideological view of the world as almost everyone does within this and related professions. But in my judgment, as you can see with some of the pragmatism that I think this president and I'm approaching and supporting uh, in the coronavirus um, pandemic, is rooted in you know in practicality and because i believe what we do has to work i believe what we say has to be meaningful and true and if those things aren't there then credibility diminishes and with credibility diminishing um you know influence diminishes and and usefulness just disappears so you've got a bunch of people that are really talking to people that already agree with them And uh, are just looking to nod their heads in agreement, and then other people that uh, say, you know, I know what those guys are going to say anyway. I don't need to hear it. Yeah, yeah. And Um, and, and, I just watch Rachel Maddow. You
1: know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we'll see. I feel like that—that's the moral of the story, especially as we're going through this whole coronavirus thing—is you can't just take headlines or what you're seeing on cable news at face value, like. As exhausting as it is, if you're going to make up your mind that something is true, you're going to have to validate it on yourself. So if they quote somebody, go look up the quote, go see who said it. Look right. at the context, you know, at a certain point, we are all going to have to be our own fact checkers, fact checkers, because even the fact checkers are biased. Like in all reality, we we got to do That's our right. own research.
0: The plenty of there's a long list of errors uh, by the few outlets that are engaged in uh, the checking of facts, they have they um, themselves have brought biases and, and inaccuracies. But you know, the reality, unfortunately, is most Americans don't have the time to do that. Most Americans struggle to um, tune in and learn what the latest news was just day to day. And this is why I think we've got a confidence of institution challenge in the country is that. You know, ultimately, um, we need the American people to have confidence and faith in the federal government that it's acting uh, honestly and authentically in in the best interests and that they're being told the truth, um, which has not always been the case, but is the case more often than it's not. And we need that to be the case in the mediums that people rely on to understand what's happening in the world around them. And I think we have a confidence in truth-telling throughout every, you know, it's existed in corporate America. It exists, obviously, in entertainment in Hollywood. It exists in academia. Um, And so many times I hear these buzz phrases or, cliches or statements that um have uh, you know no basis in fact and this one about the president calling the uh, coronavirus threat a hoax is one that um you have major mainstream media outlets as recently as today um repeating without any you know and I, am i supposed to believe that they haven't consulted the original source of the south carolina speech and the fact that he so clearly was talking about the politicization of this, and not the virus itself, of course they know what it is. It's being consciously uh, misrepresented.
1: Yeah, and you know, and I've, I've I've got a really good friend that I talk to on a regular basis, and uh, he works uh, for one of the uh, major news outlets out out here in uh, Los Angeles, and he's like, and he's and he's a producer there, and he's like, one of my biggest jobs. As pretty much the only conservative in the newsroom, is making sure that my reporters are actually doing journalism and uh, and research. They're not just pulling a tweet and finding something out of context and throwing it in, throwing it in to fit their narrative. And he's like, that's that in in and of itself is like my full time job. And he's like, even then, I can't even control everything. It's it's crazy how biased it is. And he's like, you got to remember the new. And this is coming from somebody in the news world. It's all propaganda. That's just the way yeah, it is.
0: The, uh the question is like how do we allow it to get this way and this is where i push back on some conservatives uh because i think you so routinely hear you know academia is so far to the left um the media is so far to the left entertainment in hollywood is so far to the left and um and and like they con- there's a conscious effort to kind of demonstrate that the, these are all factually, like realities of what we're facing in these institutions. I think we like can like dispel all of that. Of course, those are the realities in those institutions. That's not the question. Question is, what were we doing while they were consolidating this ideological control over core institutions in our country? Which is not to say that we needed to control them either. I don't believe in this idea of ideological control of of anything uh, but where were we as we started to acknowledge that these institutions or that, that the American people had come to rely on and that shaped the very character and knowledge of our nation were being taken over by really an ideology that at the end of the day is a minority ideology I mean, More Americans identify with conservatism than any political ideology around. You might hear all this positive things about socialism, et cetera. The reality is the American people do not on any broader universal scale embrace it. We are the mainstream ideology. I don't even like the depiction of this kind of right left paradigm. In my view, when I talk about the ideas, um, ideology values, that, that I think I represent as a mainstream conservative, those are centrist viewpoints. There, there is nothing extreme within any of those views, of that. and certainly that's the case within the National Tea Party movement of adherence to the Constitution, limited government, lower taxes. Those are, main, those are mainstream, centrist political viewpoints. That actually needed to come to the forefront because there was such a prominence of uh, extreme viewpoints out there that disregarded those centrist viewpoints.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree, and I think, and I think that again, that's where we as conservatives need need to be doing, you know, continue to keep, you know, fighting the good fight and articulate what we believe in a rational way. Because I feel like, you know, and my friend J.D. Rucker over at Knock Report, one thing that he keeps saying is, I'm a firm believer that if, if all you did is you took the names out, you took the personalities out, you took the political party out, and all you did was put forth conservative values, 70% of Americans would believe in it. But it's it's the personalities, it's the it's the fight, it's the... I,
0: two party, and let's face it, the, the elephant in the room is the two-party system, which has a long and storied history in American politics, may not be functioning... For us, in the practical way that it once was, so I believe that's the case there too. You know, if you took some of these viewpoints and took put the exam and you know, you probably have seen these on the street interviews the various um, conservative outlets have done, where they they you know take say statements that Obama made and say, did you you know Trump said this that or that other thing, and a you know a left of center student, well oh, that's outrageous, that's ridiculous. So um no actually obama said that oh really you know i mean they 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 wouldn't really identify the objection becomes the personality behind it the political party behind it or the ideology behind it and you know maybe we just reached the point where what are we doing like why do we why are we putting up that veil in front of anything let Maybe and I'm just throwing this out there because I'm sure there's deficiencies in this that I haven't yet identified. But why not allow individual candidates to simply campaign on their individual merits and ideologies? Uh, I see so many benefits to that. One is that you would take out this two party divide where where we cannot work together because you've got a different letter behind your name than I do. And you would take the power out of the congressional leadership, which in my judgment has become way too powerful mean, you can get this stimulus package, $2.2 trillion, I guarantee you, 535 members of Congress, there were probably 10 who were intimately involved in the contents of it. That's shocking. That's not the way our democracy was structured, set up. There were probably more lobbyists involved in this stimulus package than there were members of Congress. That's shocking.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then the fact that, you know, one of the the ancillary benefits is I think it also would put a little bit of burden on the American people to do some research, right? Because how many people go and vote right now and they just, you know, R write down or D write down? Now all of a sudden, yeah, you actually get to do some research on who these individuals are and what their projected visions are.
1: Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and also that would that would probably solve the solution of, you know, like there's, you know, somebody, you know, maybe they don't want to identify as Republican or Democrat. So they go independent or libertarian or whatever it is. And then auto- automatically everybody just writes them off because they're like, oh, they're third party. They can never win, as opposed to making an actual competition of of ideas instead of parties. I think yeah. that would that would be Which a fascinating true change True, right
0: now. Third party candidate cannot, for the most part, win in this country. That's why I believe. Anyone running as a libertarian is is only hurting that side of things. And, you know, look, if you believe that the Republican Party has distanced itself too far from libertarian ideas, well, my response is go get involved in the Republican Party a libertarian. And I felt the same way about when people started, I guess, simply because party was in Tea Party, this question emerged right away. Surely you guys with, you know, 40, 50 million Supporters are going to develop third-party structure, and I'm like, no, it's about functioning within the current system, because given the options between getting the Republican Party on track, representing real ideas, standing for real things, being responsive to the voter base, and running a third party and winning on a national level, the former is a lot easier than the latter. If you can't do the former... You're definitely not going to be able to accomplish the latter. Just one of the st- strictly political structure of things. So I continue to run in these people who are running as independents and libertarians because they've had it with the system. And I've said, well, it's okay that you had it with the system. but don't. But one of the reasons the system has drifted away in ways that are so alienating to you and to many Americans is because you're not involved in it. And particularly in community and local levels, there's so much that you can do with one, two, three individuals being involved in a committed way to try to advance the ball in a certain way. And plenty of stories of school boards and county commission um, boards, mayors, um, state representatives who've um, you know been able to accomplish extraordinary things in communities and locales with the support of a, a very small number of people, but, you know, a real committed vision to something that needed to be done that was responsive to the needs of the citizens of that community.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that, and I think that you know, kind of as we're wrapping up too, like that's one of those things where conservatives a lot of times will complain that Hollywood is so far left. We'll complain that education is like liberal breeding ground. We'll, we'll complain about all these different things, but it's like, but what are we doing to, to, to fix it? Like let let's get some more conservatives in Hollywood. Let's get some more conservative teachers. Let's get some more conservatives that are actually writing curriculum instead of just always complaining that oh they're so liberal. But then you go back to just you know sitting and sitting at home watching TV and not really doing anything. So that's that should be our motivating factor: is let's actually go fix this thing instead of just sitting around and then just complaining about it.
0: Yeah, you can't look at
1: at uh, politics
0: as some um, you know, profession that that you were not involved in you have to look at politics as the world around you. and that world around you is going to affect you, whether you're involved in it or not involved in it. So um, you're either, I'm, I'm forgetting the exact phrase you're either a participant in the political process or, you know, an object or victim of the political process, but there's no other way that we can do these things, um, without some degree of communal interaction, representation, um, and governance, you know, ultimately you're going to have a government that either does represent the will of the people, which we sort of kind of have, or you're going to have a government say like that in China that very distinctly does not represent. The will of the people, but you know, in their eyes, and in defense of the approach that they're taking, they believe they've got the wise men running things. And have they been able to advance the ball under that? Yeah, I guess if those metrics are the ones that matter to you, they've done well. Individuals haven't done well, but has the country's national interests advanced under that kind of approach? It's indisputable that it has. So we have a lot of pushback and a lot of pressure to abandon these core founding principles, and we don't want to allow that to happen. And that can only happen if we're disengaged from the process. If the American people are involved, and particularly if we're involved in the, in I, I, the word I probably most overuse, collaborative ways, where we're working together. You know, your skill sets augmenting my skill set. And then one plus one equals three in terms of political uh, uh, impact. Then we're going to be successful, or at least as successful as we can be.
1: Yep. No, I totally agree. And, and again, I think the moral the, the 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 moral of this story is get involved. <laughs> like that. Like that's really that's what it comes right. down to. So, well, th- thanks so much for coming on, Michael. I really, I really enjoy our talks. Really enjoy having you on. Um, And again, it's a a fascinating time, and it's really kind of, I think, stretching a lot of conservatives, and what do we actually believe with this chaos going on?
0: Yep, absolutely. Um, I think the things that we can say for sure is that we will survive this. The country will continue to be um, unique among nations of the world. Um, This threat, as serious as it is right now, will ultimately not be a threat to people. And we'll be back at the issue very quickly in November. Uh, and we're at it already now in defining what sort of country do we want to have.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's definitely the question move, moving forward. So again, thanks so much for coming on. I really you, enjoyed this conversation. And then for everybody else as well, if you guys want more information, keep up on anything, you guys can go to gatekeepersline.com and stay in touch there as well. And then, uh, yeah, we are going to be back here uh, tomorrow just as we are every day, Monday through Friday. And uh, yeah, we will see you then.